Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Tony Jamis, CEO of Oyster, a global employment platform that's raised over $220 million in funding. Tony, thanks so much for chatting with me today. Brad, thank you for having me on the show. Yeah, no problem. So before we begin talking about what you've built at Oyster and what you continue to build, let's start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background. Yeah, so I'm a serial software entrepreneur and angel investor. started my first technology company 12 years ago, uh, called Nexmo. It was an API business that we took public, was acquired last year by Ericsson, over $6 billion. And then in January 2020, I started a new business called Oyster, which is a global employment platform, a mission-driven company on a mission to make a dent in inequality through global hiring. And uh, yeah, that's who I am. I'm also a, a father and I consider myself also a, a work activist. I'm advocating for a better future of work. Nice. Well, I look forward to chatting about that a bit more in depth. A couple of questions just you know on your journey so far as a founder. So, you know, you sold your company. It looks like that was a you know, successful outcome for you, and you were doing angel investing. Was it hard for you to dive back into founding a new company and starting that journey again? Or for you, was there no option? Was that something that you knew you had to do and you couldn't just sit there and be an angel investor? I took a year and a half off between the two journeys. And during that time, I went through, I asked myself questions about why I'm here on this planet. What is my purpose? I clarified my purpose. And I also, I tried other areas. I tried to become a professional investor and, uh, and a VC. And I realized that that's not for me. I realized that actually there are some people that this is their, their core career is about investing and I can all work with them and, and delegate that to them. So it became clear to me that what drives me is this purposeful work. I was looking for what I called a scalable philanthropic effort because mm-hmm. I was considering going into philanthropy and I realized actually I don't know anything about philanthropy. And so I wanted to, to create a transitional phase around a scalable philanthropic effort. And of course, it had to be around using my skills, which is building high-growth companies and and an oyster opportunity appeared to me. And, and, and that was January 2020, and, and the rest is history. Nice. That's amazing. And if we look at you know where your inspiration comes from, is there a specific CEO and organization that you've studied the most and, and really learned from and you know, taken lessons from to build such high-growth companies? Look, my mentor and the now close friend is a guy called Pascal, and I hired him in my previous company as my coach. He was a great inspiration for me. He's a great teacher. He spent most of his career in technology, uh, over 20 years at Microsoft, building businesses from scratch to over a billion. And obviously, he talks a lot about Microsoft that, and, and Bill Gates. That was an influence. But more importantly, it's really the this close relationship. I was fortunate to have this close relationship with a, a leader who built technology businesses and, and he was dedicated to my growth and I'm grateful to have him in my life. Amazing. Yeah, I just finished a couple of months ago, the Trillion Dollar Coach book about Bill Campbell. And it seems like everyone's talking now about coaches. 
How important do you think coaches are for founders? And when you were doing you know, very active angel investing, is that something that you were recommending to all founders to have a coach? Look, for first-time founders, it is absolutely important, in my opinion, to have a role model, but also to have somebody who can observe you and can give you feedback without the fear that CEOs have or founder has as they're perceived to be to be to be strong people and and so their surrounding usually it's hard to get unfiltered feedback mm-hmm. uh, so having somebody coach that observe you and has been there somebody who has been there can be extremely valuable at least it was valuable for me and I do recommend it to other CEO and founder especially first time ones and but yeah in my portfolio I usually get requests from my portfolio companies about finding some help in that area and and I do coach some CEOs on a on an impromptu basis mm-hmm. as well on specific topics. Makes a lot of sense. Very cool. And what about books? Is there a specific book that you can recall that really had a major impact on how you think and how you operate as a founder? And this can be a business book or it could also just be a, a personal book that really influenced how you operate. A book that was gave to me during my business school in 2009 was a book called Leadership and Self-Deception. And it is the book that influenced how I interact with my team and with people in general. It is really about understanding your biases as a leader, as a human being, and manage them and, and put them aside so that they're not in the way of deeply connecting with your team. And that book, everybody in my first company have read was part of the onboarding process. And I, I do ask everyone in my leadership team at Oyster to read it as well. That's definitely a book that's really about leadership. If you allow me, there's another book that I stumbled upon recently that I think also every founder should read. It's called The Infinite Game by Simon Sinek, mm-hmm. uh, which apparently is the, the combination of everything Simon have learned and put it in this book. But it's really about the core of it is, is to put purpose at the center of your business and make sure that you have a just cause that is more about just about making money and the power of, of that. And Oyster is a great use case of the infinite game because first and foremost, we are a purpose-driven company. Yeah, I, I think every founder and so many millions of other people in the world have watched Simon Sinek's Start With Why TED Talk that he gave that you know, really launched his career. So I read that book years ago, but I didn't know he had a new book or another book. So I look forward to checking that one out. Now let's switch gears a bit and let's talk about Oyster. So can you give us just a high level overview of what exactly the platform does and the the pain points and the problems that customers are paying you to solve? I think Oyster is one of those brands that like myself, I've heard the company's name everywhere. I see it in the media, but what does the company actually do? How does the platform work? Can you just give us a detailed overview there? Sure. Oyster is a global employment platform. So we enable any company in the world to hire any person on the planet without all the red tapes of and complexities of setting up entities, hiring lawyers, accountants, payroll providers, benefit providers in every country. So essentially what we're doing, we are enabling companies to tap into the global talent pool and, and look at the world as one country instead of having all these barriers. And we're also enabling great talent around the world to think that the world is their oyster when they're looking for a job. And by doing so, by by removing all the barriers in front of companies to hire these amazing people everywhere in the world, well, we are 
aiming on making an impact in brain rain reduction and wealth inequality reduction. People don't have to leave their home countries for better job opportunities in richer areas of the world. They can stay in their communities and have access to great job opportunities. Actually, remote workers that work for companies outside of their home countries report 20 to 50% increase in their pay compared to local salary. And, and I don't know if you heard of this guy called Brian Kaplan. He's an economist at George Mason University. And he has this book, it's like a comic book called Open Borders, where he argues that if you remove the concept of borders from talent mobility, you can triple the world GDP. And that's why we believe global hiring today is more than just a business opportunity. There's an there's a economical and a societal impact. And we intend at Oyster at sending over $1 billion of foreign direct investment into emerging economies by 2024. And we are on track to hit that goal. Wow, that's impressive. That's an amazing goal. And it's incredible to hear you're on track as well. Now, if we look at this problem specifically, was this a pain point or a problem that you experienced at your previous company? Is that you know, how you were able to really feel this pain and, and understand these pain points? Yes, absolutely. At Nexmo, my first company, we had to employ people in over 40 countries because what we did, we were an API business for communication technology. So on the back end, we had to build all these local infrastructure to telcos and carriers around the world and have people on the ground dealing with these carriers. So we had to employ people in over 40 countries and oh boy, how complex that was. We spent millions of dollars building our own employment infrastructure internally, and we failed to deliver on a great employee experience. Yet, I was there and witnessing how powerful that could be. Uh, we were able to tap into a global talent pool, find an amazing talent, and we were also the best employer for Diego in Argentina and Muhammad in Morocco and Mary in Athens. Mm -hmm. So when I was ready to start a new business in Late 2019, I was trying to solve that problem. I was I wanted to build a globally distributed organization from the beginning. And I started looking for solutions to that problem. I, I did not find any solution. What I found was an industry called employer of record or PEO. These are professional services organization that helps you to employ your employee in any country without setting up an entity, but they didn't use software. They were very expensive. They were prone to error and the employee experience sucked. But that was a $17 billion industry that was screaming at me, come disrupt me with software. <laughs> and, uh, and I realized at that point that my company not only will be a globally distributed company, but its mission is to help any company in the world tap into the global talent pool. And its mission is to help great talent around the world find amazing career opportunities outside their home countries without leaving their home countries. And that's why in January 2020, I decided I want to start Oyster. And they say a big part of entrepreneurial success comes down to timing. So talking about timing, you nailed it. Um, January 2020, right before you know, the entire world seemed to change. How did those conversations change for you, let's say in January, when you were talking about this opportunity and, and the problem compared to, let's say, in April or May or you know spring that year after, it was very clear that the world was changing because of COVID and remote work was going to become a bigger and bigger thing. Did you see a change just from you know, before and after COVID? 
absolutely the change was unbelievable. I remember that in late 2019, I, I started writing the investment memo and started evangelizing it with some of my VC relationships. And some of them in San Francisco told me, hey, you know, we, we love you, but you know, we're not going to invest in a company that is not based in San Francisco. And so I came back to London. I was living in London at that time. And I raised our seed round in, in February 2020 through a local seed fund. And then uh, uh, and we met in person and we signed, we signed a term sheet. And the moment we got the, the money in the bank account, we all went into lockdown. And we had to go really fast on building the company, building the platform and the infrastructure. But after for our Series A and Series B and eventually our Series C, uh, happened in a very short period of time, and less than two years since inception, we we raised over two hundred million dollar without meeting any any investor in person, and we also raised from some of the top names in Silicon Valley as well. So the world has completely changed, and what changed is that money that was concentrated in certain areas in the world suddenly became much more distributed as well as talent. So money has followed talent. And that's a great news. That's the great news in the world because we want the next technology entrepreneur to be coming from Lagos, Nigeria and Buenos Aires, Argentina, right? We want to democratize the access to opportunity, not only from an employment standpoint, but also from an entrepreneurship standpoint. What a great time to be an entrepreneur. Absolutely. And if we look at funding there and, and zoom in on that, so raising you know almost a quarter billion dollars is incredibly impressive, especially if you look at the names that you were able to land, and especially if we consider the fact that, you know, as you just said, you, you didn't meet with them. It was you know done via Zoom. So that's amazing. But if you look at you know this opportunity, why do you think investors were so excited about this? And then you know why you and, and why the Oyster product and why the Oyster team? The market is massive. When you think about employment market and global employment market, the market is was a $17 billion market pre-pandemic. And then as the world moved to accelerate its move towards the future of work, the market got multiplied by at least 10x. So you have this massive TAM, and then at the same time, it's at the intersection of some mega trends, such as remote work, talent shortage, and the shift of employee power from employer to employees. So you have this massive time, mega trends, and it happens that Oyster has built an amazing team. We have uh, in our series uh, C pitch, uh, we were given some feedback. We were a series D team raising a series C around. <laughs> so if you're asking what is my number one job as a CEO, is really to find the pearls and hire them into this company to be able to build the best mission-driven and the most purposely fit to this company. So the team is the third area. And last but not least is the mission. All of my investors are mission-aligned, and they understand that this is bigger than just a business opportunity, and they understand that we have to try. We have to try and make a dent in global inequality through the democratization of opportunity. And Oyster is the company was making that happening. And one of the big conversations happening in the media now is around all of these companies that raised mega rounds last year or the year before, you know, are they going to be able to grow into that 
valuation as you know the world continues to fall into chaos. So what are your thoughts there? And you know, what is the team doing to really ensure that you're able to hit those metrics and, and grow into that valuation and continue to grow so you can continue to raise funds? We are, although we have witnessed some slowdown in our demand, especially in our existing customers, you think about our existing customers have like any other technology high growth company out there, they slowed their hiring, they are laying off people. So we're seeing some some softness in our existing business. But despite this massive crisis in the world that is targeting employment, we still have grown this business more than 3x this year and more than doubled our gross margins. So you have like the 6x increase in the enterprise value of the company. So you know, whatever happens in terms of valuation depression, you know, you're still growing really fast and you're still creating a massive enterprise value compared to many, many companies out there. So the best way to hedge against this valuation uh, depression is to continue to grow your business as efficiently as possible and increase the way you're growing this business, making it more efficient to acquire your, your revenues, making it mm-hmm. more efficient to support and service the revenue. And that's what the team is laser focused on. And when we look at the company's market category and just market categories in general, how do you think about that? Is this a new category that you're building and you're going to eventually lead? Is this you know transforming or redefining existing market categories that are going to be consolidated? Or how do you think about things there? Yeah, so it is absolutely a category creation exercise here in this in this market. And we have coined the category global employment platforms last year and we've been we've been applying a category creation playbook our brand is the biggest brand in our category we've achieved that in in two years despite the fact we're the last entrant some of our rivals have been in this industry for over a decade so so we're really applying this category creation playbook and we're glad to see that now the world is recognizing this category as global employment platforms. That being said, we also believe that the category is evolving fast compared to other categories where the rate of change is fast. Here, it's, it's super fast. So we do expect that the category will change in the next three years again. And we're going to see an emerging of a new category that I'm coining future of work platforms. And we want Oyster to be a leading player in that new category that we expect to give birth to in the next couple of years. And category creation is a topic that I think every software venture-backed founder right now is looking into, obsessed with, and everyone that I talk to in the show believes they're you know building a new category. You've, you know, experiences before, you've built companies before, and you've been very successful. So if you could share any insights there on, you know, what does the category playbook look like? You know, where do you begin to build that strategy out? How do you make that decision of, yes, we should build a new category or no, we should go and try to, you know, transform and disrupt an existing category? What does that playbook look like? And, you know, what are your thoughts there as you build those types of playbooks out? Yeah, so there are some great material of that out there. There's a couple of books that I recommend on category creation. One, it's called category creation uh, Mm -hmm. that I find helpful. And we use some of these techniques. And for us, it is identifying a persona that is underserved Mm -hmm. uh, in the market and support them and give them tools 
to make them superheroes in their business. So for us, it is the people function that has been going through a massive transformation in the last three years. And we are enabling them with our platform to solve some really important business issues, such as how do you find talent? How do you reward talent? How do you move your organization to become more human-centric? How do you build a high level of engagement in your business through increasing level of diversity in the business, increasing level of inclusiveness? How do you create massive amount of psychological safety in your business? So we're, we're leading the way in thought leadership around human-centric leadership for distributed companies. That's our theme. And that drives our brand, uh, that drives our business, and it's at the center of our category creation strategy. Is that the book by Anthony Canada from Gainsight? Yes, that's one of the two books that we used here to design our category creation playbook, yeah. And the second one's Play Bigger, I'm guessing? That's it, that's it, Play Bigger. That's the second <laughs> nice. Book. Yeah, those are Classic. both excellent books. And I really like the Play Bigger is good for understanding the idea of category creation. I think Anthony's book is much more tactical and he explains how to do it. But I think Gainsight's just such an incredible example of how they you know, followed that path that you just described where they said, okay, customer success management is this emerging title. There's you know, a few hundred people, maybe a thousand people with this title, but no one's serving them. No one's celebrating them. Everyone just kind of treats them like crap. So they were the ones that you guys are the heroes. We're going to make you the heroes and we're going to build you purpose-built tools to help you succeed. So I think that's a, a great example to, to call out and for companies to follow. So I just want to also mention here, I want to shout out for Connect Ventures, our pre-seed seed investor who, who first money went into Oyster. They are very product-driven fund, and their their partner there, Pietro, worked very closely with me even before starting the company to design the category and think about the category. So that was very, very helpful in the early days of the business. And why do you think so many founders, or at least this is like what I've observed, a lot of founders don't seem to have a category strategy. They're not intentionally creating a category, but they also don't want to be part of existing categories. And they just kind of like operate in the clouds and try to you know, work from there. Is that something that you've seen as well? And if so, why do you think that is for, for founders? Well, I think not every startup venture is here to create a new category. Uh, so you can disrupt existing categories and or you can gain a significant market share from existing categories through software. So I think that's most of businesses are in that category. Very few will create and dominate big, big, big new categories. And many of it is actually a reinvention of an existing category. Mm-hmm. With, so with advancement of technology or some big trends that could happen in the last few years in the employment market. And secondly, the second reason I think is because there's a finite number of strategies you can apply in your business. There's so many other strategies you can apply. You don't have to necessarily use a category creation playbook to be successful. It always depends on what you're trying to achieve. So there are other sound strategies that you can use that doesn't necessarily need to be a category creation. And actually, especially now, in the, as the world moves into more efficient growth and funding becomes more scarce, category creation are becoming less popular because it's just very, very expensive strategy to execute on, but it can have also high return, right? So now as the world moves into less risk and more efficiency, we're going to see uh, category creation becoming probably less popular. 
That makes sense. When there was FU money floating around the ecosystem, it seems like everyone wanted to be a category creator. And a lot of the investors were on board with that, which obviously takes a long time. Now that you know runways are being shortened, it seems to be changing a bit. So I'll be curious to see how this category creation conversation looks, you know, two or three years from now. Yeah, we're still excited about category creation at Oyster, even mm-hmm. uh, with the current focus on, on runway extension, uh, mm-hmm. although it would take us longer, right? So essentially, we accepted the fact that it's going to take uh, a longer time than we expected uh, to be able to get to a place where we can say, well, this is a, you know, a new category that we are shifting to or we are designing. What has to be interesting for Oyster, though, is I think most of the time with categories, you have to you know really create demand for the category and then create demand for the product. But it seems like for Oyster, you're in this dream position where there's probably already a massive need and a massive amount of demand for something like your platform, right? Just with the rise of you know those trends that you mentioned, there has to be a massive group of people who are hunting for solutions like yours. Do you think that's the case? We were so fortunate to be at the right time and the right place with the right product that demand so far, we, we it's never been a demand issue for us. So now the question for us is how do we capture the demand in more efficient ways uh, as we emerge a more efficient player ourselves? But global employment is uh, the demand seems unlimited for the foreseeable future. And what's that go to market motion look like for you? Is it bottoms up or is it top down? So it's a combination of both, though. We have three major acquisition channels. So inbound, that is organic and paid. We have outbound, and then we have partnerships. These are three major acquisition channels we use. And on top of that, there's the brand that is an umbrella that helps us in in everything we do. Mm -hmm. Uh, That is also important, specifically in a category creation uh, strategy. Makes a lot of sense. And if we look at your journey so far and your prior experience leading and, and selling a company, what would you say is the number one challenge that you faced in terms of bringing an idea to market? And how do you overcome that challenge? The number one challenge, at least the one I faced, is to position the product in a way that resonates well with your target market is really this iteration process that needs to happen in terms of understanding who is your ideal customer profile, what is the right messaging for them, what is the right positioning for your company in the eyes and in the minds of the buyer. I think that's an iterative problem that every founder or product marketing leader needs to be obsessed with uh, and continuously fine-tune and refine that positioning in the market and have ways to track it, have some mature, data-driven infrastructure that enables you to iterate fast, make quick decision on this question. Because, because the best product doesn't always win. It's the best position and the best market product that will win eventually. And how do you iterate on that? You know, What's that process look like for you? Is it a matter of, okay, we're going to change up the homepage and do a split test here to see what message is resonating? Or are you sharing messaging with sales reps and then recording the conversations and seeing what resonates? Or how do you test positioning or, and test messaging? Because I feel like that's always a, a challenge that founders face. Yeah, we do. We do all of the stuff that you mentioned earlier on a tactical basis. But from a strategic standpoint, what I've been told in this company early on is this framework I call the buyer purchasing criteria. So on every deal we lose or we win, we understand what the buyer 
uh, wanted to see and why they selected us or why they did not select us as a vendor and iterate on that. We keep adding more buyer purchasing criteria, changing them, monitoring them, see how it's evolving. And also we need to be aware that there's the buyer purchasing criteria can be also created by us. So it's not always, I call it the Ford Model T strategy, where you don't want to offer the customer always what they asked for. You want to also give them an alternative that you want to bias their views towards a better platform, a better future for them. And so uh, so in our case, we um, these buyer purchasing criteria are things like, what is our network reach? What is our software experience? What is our... Uh, pricing for them. and But then there's other areas such as how much do we help you become more employee-centric? You know, are you picking us because we are employee-centric or not? So this is not necessarily they're looking for this, but mm-hmm. this is something that we've added because we believe it's important for our customers and their employees around the world. Got it. And if we look at remote work in general, that's very topical conversation with everything happening at Twitter now, where you know Elon Musk just pulled away remote work as an option unless you're an exceptional worker. What are your thoughts on how this plays out? Do you think that more and more technology companies are going to say no more remote work? Or do you think it's going to continue down this path of remote work world? Look, Brad, the, there's no coming back on this. And why? Because the best talent in the world they know now that they have access to the additional freedom of location, the freedom of time. They can work in a flexible way. And that gives them power to control their life, to want to have the life that they deserve. So these best talent in the world, they're going to gravitate towards companies that make them successful no matter what they are. And therefore, you're going to start having this virtuous cycle where the best company in the world is going to attract the best worker in the world and they're going to be remote workers and they're going to be remote companies. So the best company in the world is going to be remote companies. They're not going to, have to be. It's not going to, they're not going to going back on this cycle. And not to mention, you know, all the benefits that remote work provide companies and people. We can spend an hour talking about this, uh, but that's that's <laughs> why I'm a I'm, I'm a self-proclaimed activist that that is focused on making the world of work better through uh, remote work and distributed hiring. And I saw that on your LinkedIn on the banner, you have future of work activists. So outside of just remote, how do you articulate your vision for the future of work? You know, what should that future of work look like? The future of work should be more centered around the needs of humans. Work should work for people and not the other way around. Work should support people's life. People Work should enable people to have the life that they want to have, whether they want to work flexibly, wherever they want to work. At Oyster, we, uh, like many remote companies, we use asynchronous ways of collaboration and communication, which makes it easier for people to design their work hours. It's easier for people to live anywhere they want. And it gives people, let's give you an example of of, of story of Christina. Christina that works for us in the Philippines. Before working for us, she used to commute four to six hours a day to go to work every day. She's a mother of two. She used to sleep on the bus to go to work and it was the only time she can sleep. Now, she works from home now at Oyster and she brings her uh, children to school. She put them to bed and she can do that every day. I mean, these are life-changing impact of remote work on people around the world. And uh, so so that's what I advocate for. I advocate for a better future of work that give people back their lives and make them extremely productive and and aligned uh, employees for your business. 
And that must feel incredibly rewarding for you as an entrepreneur, right? Really having an impact on people's lives and you know giving them their lives back so they're not spending it sleeping on buses. That's what gave me the energy and the determination to do this again. That was my next question is, what excites you most about what you get to do every day? And you know, it, it makes sense for a first-time founder, but you know, you're a serial entrepreneur at this point, successful entrepreneur. You know, what motivates you so much and, and keeps you going through the, the hard times that inevitably come up when you're building a massive company like yours? So we spoke about the mission and, mm -hmm. uh, and the alignment was my, my journey, my purpose as a human being. I'm originally from Lebanon. It's a country that doesn't offer much opportunity to its people. And it's not only a Lebanese problem, it's a world problem. We have 80% of the world population living in emerging economies with very little access to opportunity. So I feel very connected uh, to the mission. Mm -hmm. And But also what, what I'm excited about in my work is, is the fact that I can work for people from over 80 countries. I work for people from over 100 nationalities. We, are, we have diversity level in the business that is unheard of. That resembles planet Earth. So having having this opportunity to work from people from all over the world and witness how impactful diversity can be on our results, on the engagement numbers. We have top 3% engagement levels compared to all VC-backed companies for the last few quarters. So that's very exciting for me and energizing to work in that environment that is so open, so safe for people to show up themselves and so rewarding and empowering for people to design the life that they want to have. Yeah, I can imagine. That must be incredibly fulfilling. Last question here. I know we talked about the future of work that you're advocating for. Let's talk about the future of Oyster. What's that five-year vision look like? What's the company going to look like? What's the platform going to look like five years from now? So I've set an ambitious goal for the company to reach 1 million employees on the platform by 2030. In order for us to make a dent in global inequality, we need to reach millions of, of employees. And to do so, we have to lead with software. We have to become this fully automated platform of employment in over 180 countries. It's a huge effort. Global employment is a monster that is very hard to solve. And, and only through software, we can reach this kind of numbers. And secondly, is about building the most employee-centric platform on the planet. So we want to drive companies on their path to becoming not only distributed company, but also human-centric company. Because not only you are based in Morocco, that you don't deserve a great employment experience, a fair contract, and, and a fair pay. Mm -hmm. And lastly, we want to... We, we want to make this transition from a global employment platform to a future of work platform. And when I, what I mean by that is addressing all increasingly the HR needs of distributed and hybrid companies as a transition to become more human-centric. Uh, and, and it's not only about employing people, it's also about finding talent. It's also about knowing how much to compensate talent and, and other HR needs that are required to really build a highly engaged distributed workforce. Amazing. And that's certainly an incredibly exciting vision and solving such a massive pain point for the world. So looking forward to seeing that all come to life. Unfortunately, that's all we're going to have time to cover for today. But before we wrap, if people want to follow along with your journey as you build, where's the best place for them to go? They can follow me on LinkedIn, on Tony Jamus. Amazing. Tony, thank you so much for taking the time to chat, talk about what you're building and really share your vision. Like I said, this is so exciting and really appreciate you taking the time. Brett, thank you, my friends, for having me on the show. No problem. Let's keep in touch. 